Hello, and welcome to Artbox DNV. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I had the chance to talk to Camille Rose Garcia. Camille is a visual artist whose work depicts broken narratives of wasteland fairy tales and the duality of things. We talk about her new solo show called Obsidian Butterfly that will be at KP Project this month, and we talk about the themes in her new solo show and influences and advice for artists. So with that, sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and start the interview. Uh, thank you again, by the way, for doing this. I almost forgot to say thank you very much. Thank you. And um, so uh, without further ado, let's start this little interview. And I didn't mean that to rhyme, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, could you introduce yourself and how you started down your path into the arts? Sure. I'm Camille Rose Garcia. I grew up in Los Angeles. Both my parents were artists. They met in art school in San Francisco. I guess I started really at a young age watching my mom work. She was a working artist, a muralist, and a sign painter. So she always kind of had stuff around for me to, you know, materials for me to, to draw with. And I started working with her in my teen years, helping her out doing the murals and sign painting. So I really learned most of my kind of technical chops from her. She was a single mom, you know, raising two kids. So she was a great example of someone who was making a living in the arts. You know, that's kind of a thing some people think you can't do it. Yep. You know, yeah. What I do is is very specific and they go, people get paid to do that? I'm like, yes, people get paid to do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, it's actually, you can make a living from it. Yes. Yeah, it is possible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So then, you know, you got your chops from from learning from mom. And what about dad? Did, did you get any kind of pick up any influences, osmosis from him? Or was that? Yeah, I never lived with my dad. He, um, they got divorced when I was one, but he was definitely in my life. Yeah. He had a very interesting life. He was a filmmaker and director, but he was a Chicano and back in the day, you know, it was sort of rare to be able to break into that world. Yeah. So, yeah, he was kind of involved with like documentary filmmaking and documented the Chicano movement in Los Angeles in the 70s. So from him, I feel like, and definitely from that side of the family, I kind of really gravitated towards storytelling. Hmm. You know, as a child, I was very interested in film and but mainly like animation and I think I always kind of thought, oh, maybe that's what I'll do because I like the telling a story over time. I don't know. It, I got from him, definitely. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as a kid, and, and most kids, and I include myself in this, you were, you were drawn to animation. So in, in your world, you had a mom who was a professional artist or a working artist, and you had a dad who worked in the film industry. Yeah. So then being a kid and being influenced by cartoons, how did you start to gravitate or funnel from them outside influences, personal influences and friends down to where you got to now, right? Is that, am I making the right assumption or? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, when we talk about animation specifically, I guess I'm referring to like the golden age of animation, which was like the early Disney films okay. and Warner brothers. They would have animations on TV, right. Looney Tunes, also all the um, like Felix and Betty Boop all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I felt like in a way those animated characters were kind of like my best friends or my family. Like it felt (laughs) like they were real things, you know? And when I think as a child, when I found out they were just drawings, photographed 
to make the move. It was just super enchanting to realize like, oh, you can draw things and sort of imbue life into those things. And that was like super mind blowing. But yeah, yeah, definitely that influence of like Hollywood and early golden age stuff was like a big draw as a child. So uh, we could safely say that accounting was not a big draw for you as a child, right? <laughs> I know I don't know any accountants. <laughs> Not part of my world. Yeah, I come from a very creative family on both sides. My great great grandfather actually helped work on the Eiffel Tower in Paris. He was no an way. architect. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 My grandparents were both um my grandma d- was did watercolors. Like there it just it's all like hippies and counterculture <laughs> and artists and you know, in my in my family. So so art, art made sense. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it was just it's your world already. It was almost predestined, uh, almost fate. Kind of. I think yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so overall, what kinds of topics and concepts do you explore in your work? So I feel like I really in the work, it's always kind of the same topic, which is the intersection of nature and culture and how those two things either battle each other or kind of coexist. Even though I had like a sort of a punk rock teenage growing up, I'm also kind of like a total California tree hugger hippie also, (laughs) (laughs) like a classic. And I think when I really look back at this century and the amount of change that's happened since I grew up, I was born in 1970 and from 1970 to now, and you just kind of are bearing witness to what is called progress, you know, capitalism, progress, growth. But I think after World War II, there was all this sort of explosion of like growth and hope in this country. And there was a lot of room and there was a lot of resources. But in my lifetime, it has become reaching resource limits on the planet. And that's been happening, you know, it really in the 60s started with the hippies of like, you know, hey, we have to pay attention to how we treat the land and how we treat animals. And, you know, this is important. Yeah. So that has been the main defining message of my work the whole time. The how I get that message across will fluctuate, but the main message is always the same. And that is that we need to kind of take a different approach to how we live upon this land if we want to continue to witness its beauty and its magic in a nutshell. Yeah. Was it a defining moment for you for that? Because I can say for myself, um, when I went to high school, I didn't do well in chemistry honors. So the other alternative class was environmental science. And yeah, it was a cool class, but it was also a very depressing class because, you know, they talk about how styrofoam will never go away and plastic is very bad. And now you're really starting to see a lot of that kind of come to roost today, you know. Yes. So basically after nine weeks of the class, it's like, man, this class is sad. You know, what can I do? What can I do? And I felt hopeless. Yeah, yeah. But uh, did you have that kind of moment yourself to start really thinking more about nature and your work? You know, this is a good question I've thought about over time because I it's hard to pinpoint because I feel like I've always just had those ideas about the world, but I think it really comes back to my grandparents on my mom's side who, um, they lived in Burbank, but then they were like back to the landers Hmm. and they, not landers, but you know, they were part of kind of a movement of like, let's get back to nature. They moved up to Northern California. (laughs) My grandpa like was able to homestead this land and built a cabin there and moved his seven kids, which my mom was one of them 
up to the woods from like electricity and civilization to like no electricity, you know, lighting the oil lamps, like this whole thing. Right. Right. But I would go up there every summer from, you know, being born and living in Los Angeles. We would go up every summer to the cabin, which is actually where I live now, not in the cabin, but in the same area. (laughs) And I think what I experienced as a young child was that everything magical and beautiful and great happened over those summers when I would go and be in this pristine national forest. I mean, I collected insects. We swam in the river every day. And that was just a big part of my grandparents' ethos of, Hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And so when I would come back to LA and then really Orange County where I grew up in my sort of younger years, it was like everything sort of bad that happened to me happened in the suburbs. (laughs) I can relate. And just how people were in the suburbs. It felt like there was just a big chunk missing from people's lives. I kind of grew up in a music scene in in high school and there was a lot of drug use. And this was like the eighties in the suburbs. It was just rampant. Yeah. And it just felt like, why are people so miserable? How do you define what creates that misery? But there just seemed to be something missing that could not be fulfilled by malls or movies or shopping or all of this sort of corpo culture that they had rolled out in the suburbs. Like, this is a perfect utopia we've made for you. And the reality of it was, no, it's not. And so, yeah, when I think about it, it really came from a young age of experiencing what it's like to live in a pristine wilderness and the how you feel sort of like complete as a human at, yeah. versus living in Cuban culture, which I've always felt really alienated in, you know? Yeah. Uh, hold on one second. I want to write this down. Woods City. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it's it's actually feeding into the next question. And yeah. that is what draws you to the duality of things like beautiful and frightening and pain and pleasure and um, woods and city <laughs> uh, and why? What aspect of this duality that uh, you love to explore? Well, I think to have, when we talk about duality, this is interesting because it sort of feeds into esoteric concepts, which is that everything has a polarity, right? Um, right. And everything's just sort of graduations on those two poles, you know, hot and cold, pretty ugly, right. dead, alive. You know, I mean, even that duality is anything ever really dead? Because once it's dead, other things come in and eat it and live and make other things. So it transcends. Yeah. Yeah. So really, when you speak about duality, you're just talking about encompassing the whole of human experience. I feel like in Western culture, there's been an imbalance because I think people have maybe have the expectation that you can live a life without suffering Hmm. and that's not possible for anyone. Some people, some cultures experience more suffering than others, maybe depending on if their ecosystem has fallen apart or their country has fallen apart. I feel like in America, in the post-war, post-World War II, we have had an incredible period of prosperity for most people for most and yeah maybe the expectation has been that's the way life is Hmm. and now i think we're hitting a point where 
and this is maybe generalizing, but some people that have lived in Western American civilization with all of the comforts are maybe experiencing certain hardships, like they can't get their Amazon package <laughs> in three days or there's no computer chips. I'm sort of being facetious, but right. you know what I mean? Yeah, first world that, problems. Yeah, That there has to be the other side of it to have that kind of balance and really to have an appreciation for the whole of life and to have compassion for other people. Yeah, because like you said, nowadays, it seems like things are so high contrast. Like it's it's either, you know, some or all. It's not like, well, it's, it's just too expansive. I, I do talk a lot with people about how capitalism is basically kind of starting to wane. It, the tooth is getting long in it, in my opinion. And people are, think, is, are yeah. starting to yeah. kind of wake up to that concept. I mean, you know... Uh, yeah, we're we're in late capitalism. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. And I, you know, I think about capitalism a lot because I think it has created a lot of problems for a lot of people in yeah. the world. I'm not not saying that I'm like have some other system that <laughs> would work perfectly. Yeah. But I, this is how I define capitalism, how I've experienced it in my lifetime is that capitalism takes everything magical and beautiful in the world and turns it into landfill. Yeah. And it does that for money. Yeah. That's, so if you want growth and you want it faster and you want to make more money, then you turn more of the magic in the world into landfill at a faster rate. And we're running into the limits of that equation pretty much now. Wow. That is very eloquently well put. I cannot disagree with that statement at all. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been. <laughs> yeah, well, you've been, been thinking about it. Pondering that for years, like it, I guess that sums it up. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we're doing. That's stupid. <laughs> well, and I wanted to go back to the, your uh, with the other aspect of this, the city nature thing that we were just talking about. It is interesting that you're you're taking kind of the perspective of Western culture dealing with nature. And, yeah. you know, because you have Eastern culture when it deals, especially with Eastern philosophy and dealing with nature, it's like you just got to coexist with it. Uh, it's going to, you know, you can't beat it, you can't lose to it, but you have to coexist with it. And Western civilization yeah. definitely is nothing like that when it comes to nature. They like to say, no, we own this. We, we can, you know, dominate it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge kind of cultural shift, I think. And, you know, I take my cue, I guess, from uh, a lot of indigenous cultures that really understand yeah. um, living on their land base, taking care of their land base, that that is a thing to be protected for their future generations. And by caring for generations of fish, that provides something for their future generations to eat. It's all connected. But yeah, I think Western civilization, capitalism, it literally calls land or trees or people or animals resources, you know, yeah. you have human resources, you have land-based resources. Yeah. And by calling things that, not only does it dehumanize, you know, even like the human resources, mm. it takes away the most important part of that interaction between you as a human creature and the land that you're on. Like, yeah. so I live in the woods in Northern California now. I've lived there since 2007. I come to LA all the time. Because I grew up here. I do a lot of business here. But the first thing I notice, I always notice this first is... When I'm in L.A. or any big city, but in L.A., I can't see the stars. And by not being able to see the stars, I don't think about the stars. I don't think about the universe. I, and nobody here does if they can't see the stars. If you're in a place you can see the Milky Way every night, you can't help but think about 
how amazing that is or like what's that planet i wonder yeah. what that solar system's like and that planet and i don't know it just fascinates me and i notice it first off that it's not part of my daily experience when i'm in the city you know well then that just feeds into this question and uh, okay. we both love this question <laughs> okay what influences do you draw from in your past work and your current work this is a great question. Actually, I actually do have an answer. Um, <laughs> so, and it could be because there's a defining point between past and present. And that is um, 2007 when I did move up. Uh, you know, I've lived in Los Angeles my whole life uh, until 2007, then moved up to the woods. And what I realized about my work was the work that I made in Los Angeles same topic, talking about, you know, nature and culture and how they intersect, but there was more right. focus, I guess, on sort of the, there were more factories and the sky was kind of dingy yellow and there were little cartoon people taking pharmaceutical drugs. It was a little bit more of a Debbie Downer, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So there was more focus on, I guess, the, the negative polarity of this thing we're talking about. When I moved to the woods... What started happening, and I've always been suspicious of being like, you know, I don't want to just be like a nature painter that paints like <laughs> nice, pretty scenes of anything, because then you're ignoring all the problems of civilization. Yeah. So I was always hesitant to like paint flowers or insects, but I just, it just all started creeping in. So hmm. first it was like, I'm painting the mushrooms and then I'm painting some trees and more greens and blues started to come into the paintings. And then at some point, and what's trippy is like the paintings got a lot more psychedelic once I moved up there. Um, the colors got really keyed up because I find nature in its purest form basically like an acid trip. You, I mean, <laughs> up there, there, you know, in one square mile during mushroom season, you'll have like over 500 varieties of mushrooms. And this one time I was walking in the ancient redwood forest and I saw one I've never seen before. And it was like an electric blue um, fungus, oh, wow. you know, but like electric. Yeah. yeah. So there's just weird stuff that you realize like, oh, I would never, there's no way I would ever see this in the city or, you know, everything's like there's concrete on all the earth and then you have buildings and you see other, you know, cool things, but you don't see that kind of cool thing. So there's a defining moment of a switch in my brain where I started to focus kind of more on like, let's maybe highlight what's amazing about nature rather than what's wrong with industrial civilization, you know? Like you said, when you look at your body of work, you can see that transition. It is subtle, but it, it's definitely with the colors. They got more saturated. They got brighter. They yeah. got more contrast within the colors. And so essentially, once you moved up to, into the woods, uh, you basically started to think, subconsciously maybe uh, i'm speculating here of course that uh you know things started getting brighter for you uh, in a psychological sense you think or it was just more opportunity to feel like you could explore more with color and in, in, in within your work you know i think on a subconscious level for sure but i think what happened is that living in an intact ecosystem changed me on a cellular level hmm and I think it can do that to anybody. If you live in it, not just visit, you know, like yeah. one weekend you go to Yosemite right. because you're not really having an understanding of what that means. I mean, like 
living in it like like a hermit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm almost at the point, and I grew up with technology and computers and everything, but like I'm almost at the point where like I understand how people just want to live without electricity. Like just turn it all off. Just turn it all off. I'll have yeah. the candle. You know what I mean? I'll just stare oh, yeah. at the snow. Like I get it. I totally get it because the world in its current digital form and constant content, it's overwhelming. You yeah, know what I mean? Like it is. it's very overwhelming and it doesn't give your mind any space to really truly like relax or meditate. I mean, some people meditate. I think that's very important. Like at this point, my whole life is practically a meditation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, especially what's going on in our world right now, we can't avoid the, you know, the unrest, the diseases, everything going on. And, oh, I know. And, yeah, and you know, at, at the time of this recording, Texas, <clears throat> you know, that is also something that's on my mind a lot. And like you yeah. said, sometimes yeah. you got to deplug, you know. And yeah. I, I have to admit, maybe I'm a little jealous. You get to hang out in the woods with with Bigfoot. You, know, you I, should be jealous. Everyone I, uh, should be jealous. I mean, and everyone should be jealous to the point where they protect their own land base or plant trees or just will not, you know what I mean? Like yeah. we have to be passionate about nature because we have sort of cavalierly mowed over, bombed, mined, stripped a lot of it from this planet. Yeah. And it, the planet will be fine in the end, but exactly not realizing how much we need that to be there for our own mental health even. Like that's, that's major. Yeah. I, I mean, when you think about it from that science perspective, you know, we were able to see color because we were out in the woods. You know, we weren't <laughs> always in a city, you know, to some extent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even you think like 100 years ago, there was a lot less like urban sprawl, that kind of, you know, you'd have the big exactly. cities, but you'd have a lot of in between space and the amount yeah. of change and rapid, like I said, the machine, the industrial military industrial machine yeah. that is a death cult that puts everything into its maw and turns it up and turns it into landfill. Even just an example, Afghanistan, not to get into like politics or I'm an expert. But oh, I'm willing to go. The, Let's go. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, anywhere we have decided we're going <laughs> to, we're going to use all of our, bomb thingies that we made because we spent a lot of money on them and there's no military industry if we don't use this stuff. Anywhere we have dropped bombs, we use depleted uranium in a lot of these bombs. I'm not sure which ones and I don't know now, but I'm sure they don't make like organic bombs at this point. <laughs> but we, that's, they could never figure out what to do with all the nuclear waste. So, I mean, last time I checked, we used some of that depleted uranium in, in warheads. So yeah. anywhere we have drone star bombs, whatever, what they, whatever they call them, maybe it's not a nuclear weapon or the atom bomb, like the smaller ones, we destroy land bases and we destroy that land base for the people that live there. And that's just one example. And that's like, oh, we're exporting. And we don't see it a lot here. We don't see pictures of it a lot because they figured out after Vietnam we don't want anyone to see all this stuff. They'll like be against it. So yep. it's sort of hidden. You know what I mean? Oh, but yeah. it's still happening. Yeah. So, you know, that's just one example of like an absurd, an absurd idea of what are you actually accomplishing either for that part of the world or for the world in general? You're just accomplishing death. That's <laughs> it. 
that is a very valid statement to make. It is because uh, sometimes I do feel that uh, not understanding the culture that you're going to be dealing with on a positive or negative level, you know, it, you got to understand that culture because they may not have yeah. the same kind of value systems that we have. And taking the time yeah. to understand that would help a lot. So. Yeah. And I'm certainly not saying like, you know, that was a great place for women before. Like, it's not about that. I'm just, I'm just talking about like the military industrial, the use of those yeah. bombs over the world and how much pollution of the, the earth, you know what I mean? Oh, like right. how yeah. much destruction that's created. Yeah. I mean, you even go, you just go through like one fourth of July with a bunch of fireworks and it's like all the animals are traumatized and like, there's just like litter everywhere. I don't know. Yeah. We just never think of these things and we can, we need to start. We do. We do. We need to kind of get out of that uh, first world problem shell and start working on a, a world yeah. problem thing. So uh, that yeah. was one aspect of your influences, definitely nature. Uh, what about films or any other kind of art or writing or anything like that or have influenced you or? Oh, yeah. I mean, I read all the time. I love I love all of the music. Music is a huge one. Music I have on in my studio while I'm working and that will sort of like lead to different ideas. But yeah, film, writing, music, all of it. Film, like Alejandro Jodorowsky is amazing. Yes. I kind of love I love Stanley Kubrick, but you know, I kind of love films that could take you out of your world and almost act like a spell upon your subconscious mm. and to where you come out of the film and you're like, you feel like you've been in a parallel universe. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's very tough to accomplish. That would be definitely very influential. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's the film industry. It's hard for people to do that kind of film now or maybe back in the seventies or even earlier, it might've been easier. It was more, well, you know, I don't know that you could make it, a 2001 Space Odyssey now, you know, or I don't know. Well, don't know. well mine was Clockwork Orange. So, you know, yeah. So that's, yeah. <laughs> I was probably too young to see that as a kid. I kind of regret not reading the book. Should not be admitting that, right? But uh, I need to read the book. No, you can admit it. I mean, a lot of times I'll see a film and read the book after, you know. But the book is interesting because he, you know, he made up all of that language, you know, that like malarkey, malarkey, whatever, yeah. all that crazy language. Oh. He, there was a whole like dictionary of those words. And oh. it was really fascinating how he created this whole culture. I think some of that language was inspired by by Russian. You know, there was it was like a mix of different languages, but obviously kind of touching upon that, like an authoritarian culture. Yeah, no, I, I learned something today. I think I better go read that book. And wow. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Hey, I like um, learning. So, well, you know, yeah. One of my early shows was called Ultraviolence Land, and Ultraviolence, of course, is from Clockwork Orange. Yes. yes. Uh, back home, there was a bar called the Milk Bar that uh, played oh, a lot. Cool. Of, yeah, they played a <laughs> lot of it. underground bands. That was awesome. Yeah, um, yeah, that's rad. What then would be your process, if there is one, in coming up with concepts for your work and or your shows? Yeah, yeah. So. My process is it's pretty, it's pretty internal in terms of like, what do I mean by that? It always starts with writing about my own experience that I'm having, right? So whether that's I'm reading certain books and then like, oh, okay, I, I stumbled. That's a cool concept. I'll take that little bit and write it in my little, you know, my little art journal. <laughs> or if I'm, you know, doing a walk or at the ocean or something and I see something visually that needs to be explored then it's at or if it's emotions about the world i mean a lot of it's like how do i process and communicate to people 
what I want my art to do for them or for the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how do I do that? Because I'm one person. I can't seem to change anything in the world. Like I have my one little vote, you know, but it's <laughs> like that process seems so slow and antiquated. So, you know, how can, I guess my, my, the long game is like, if these paintings exist after I'm dead and there's somewhere, I don't know, in someone's house or museum or in some burned out old building, uh, some remnant of civilization, yeah. what do they represent? What do they communicate that is important that I need to say, like, this is what needs to be communicated. So it's that. So it's like the big, the, the macro picture of that. And then it's the micro picture of like what personally is happening to me or that I'm experiencing that can help communicate that. Yeah. So the process is like writing, listening to music, kind of collecting all of the effluvia floating around in my brain. And yeah. there's a lot of it, like the notes and post-it pile and the sketches pile for any show is usually bigger than the show. You know? <laughs> well, that makes sense. I mean, you're thinking yeah. of stuff, you're trying out ideas. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, you have to see my desk. I have a bunch of notebooks and sketchbooks that are just full of ideas and different things. I, I get it. I understand. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, got a new show coming up here. Yeah. So for your new solo show, and yeah. uh, it's going to be at the KP Projects from September 11th through October 9th. Mm -hmm. For that show, what key themes and concepts are you exploring and why? So, yeah, my show coming up, it's called Obsidian Butterfly. And that title, actually, it's interesting. It came from, it's kind of a long story. It's from an Octavio Paz writings piece of poet from Mexico City. When I went to visit my grandmother, who lived till 100, she was in Tucson. Wow. It was the last time I saw her. She had a massive stroke. And I bought this book there at this bookstore in Tucson. So I, I always kind of buy a book for, I don't know, I buy things when I travel and it helps me remember that moment, right? Yeah. But my family is from that region, the Sonora Desert, on my dad's side. They're all Yaqui Indian. So there's a lot of that kind of culture and like Mexican culture that really resonates with me, you mm -hmm. know, yeah. of how I kind of view the world and think. So I found this book by Octavia Paz and I was like, yeah, oh, and I, yeah, I need to, this is all amazing. This is like how my brain works. So I pulled that Obsidian Butterfly from his work. Hmm. And then only after I had been working on the show for like eight months, I Googled it just to kind of make sure it wasn't like some stupid, you know, other thing. Yeah. <laughs> and what I found was that Obsidian Butterfly is actually an Aztec, a warrior goddess, a skeletal warrior goddess. Hmm. She's like the goddess of, it's kind of, it's a little morbid, but of women that lose their babies in childbirth or that die in childbirth. Okay. But this goddess at the same time, we're talking about duality. So that's like the most awful thing you can think of. Oh yeah. But it, this goddess also hangs out in the garden of Eden. Like that's where she lives, hmm. whatever their version of that is. Like right. the, the original beautiful forest or garden. So she's like this horrible, like skeletal goddess of death, but then hangs out in this beautiful, you know, garden of creation. And she looks like she has like obsidian stone claws that are really sharp. And then she's like a skeleton. So, but I didn't know that until I was like eight or nine months in. I liked the term obsidian butterfly. And this is where it comes from the personal is um, 
So last year, right around this time, we were having a lot of forest fires in California. Oh, yes. And we had to evacuate because there was a fire that burned really fast overnight. And it was like just a day and we had to leave. And we didn't know if our whole town was going to be gone, you know? Yeah. So I'm pretty close to the ocean. My mom lives right there on the ocean. So me and my husband evacuated with our dogs to the ocean and the sky was filled with smoke. The, you know, the sun was orange and the way it was reflecting off the water was like, it looked really strange. Like we just didn't know if our whole lives had burned up. Like that's what it seemed like happened, but there was no way to know until a couple of days later. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, we're at the ocean there, you know, it was like low tide. There were all these tide pools and there's like a seagull with a little crab claw. And it was like really beautiful the way the light was because of the smoke. So it was this like sort of two feelings at the same time, this like horrible sadness of not only like climate change and what have we done, but just personally like, oh my God, what if our little oasis all burns up and we have nothing. So it was like a, a loss feeling. But at the same time, an intense gratitude at being alive and being able to experience the ocean even and an intact ecosystem. And, you know, my husband was fine. Our pets were fine. Like, so having those two feelings at the same time. And I thought Obsidian Butterfly kind of captures that. You have Obsidian, which is kind of made in a volcano. It's like molten volcanic glass. So you have the fire element, which is also very like hard but fragile. And then you have the butterfly element, which is sort of ethereal and light and sort of transient, you know, they don't live very long, you know? Yeah. So I liked those two things expressing that duality of these two emotions I was holding at the same time. And I feel like we, in this moment, culturally, we all have to kind of hold these two emotions at the same time because there's an incredible, incredible sadness of, and loss of sort of realizing like we're in the climate change, like the things are happening. Yeah, I'm literally grateful. Like I wake up and like, I'm grateful to be having a show. I'm grateful I have a career. I'm grateful, you know, my mom is okay. Like you have to kind of have that gratitude at the same time, you know? Yeah, and you then should. when I yeah. read about the, the Aztec warrior goddess and that she embodied like these two, you know, but of course, because Octavio Paz is brilliant, that that would be, you know, I would latch onto that part. And that's what he was talking about as well. You know, that's wow. Yeah, that's a lot. I know. Well, uh, yeah, I'm just admittingly kind of unpacking it. When I looked at the name of the show, my first thought was, you know, because um, sometimes some butterfly species, their wings kind of reflect almost like glass. And so yeah. that was one of my first thoughts is like, no, I know that you like to deal with duality. So it made me really think it's like, that is, so that's why I wanted to know, you know, about what what's the themes for this show. Yeah, yeah. And so that, yeah, so they're basically my sort of love letter to the ocean, like an homage to the ocean and how water is like a vessel for our emotions. At the same time, like I made these driftwood toppers that are sort of like, they look like burnt firewood. Yeah. And this is like, I wanted the element of fire and originally I was going to use all this wood from the burned for, oh, so our house didn't burn down, but it got, you know, it got close to our town. That's We're fine. okay. Yeah. But, you know, but a lot of people last year and this year, like, you know, you drive all over California and there's just the huge dead stands of trees. Yeah. So I wanted to use some of that for the show, but, you know, burned wood is kind of fragile and you have to mill it and all this stuff. But my mom 
she's like a beachcomber person and she collects all this driftwood. She was like, why don't you, could you use some of my driftwood? And it was, so I painted some of it black and it looked perfect. It looked like, you know, charred wood. Yeah. But then there was this element of like collaborating with the ocean because what the ocean does is it has taken all, all this wood that has died. It flowed down in a river and it ended up in the ocean and then banged up against the shore and landed there and all the weak parts of the wood have chipped off. So all you have is this like strong surviving core hmm. of the wood. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I and there was something to that that like it had had this whole life before I even decided to use it. Right. I just felt and then that that the ocean kind of made those pieces for me. It was like so brilliant. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So I, I kind of like how you're speaking to dualities. It's like you're taking something and you're repurposing something that had a whole new life and, and, and introducing it now as art. That's yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. So I'm basically like a shell and driftwood artist now <laughs> <laughs> from my edgy LA roots. Now I'm that, that person. You have traveled far, my friend. <laughs> I have. I really have. So, uh, so for the new show, how do you think the viewers will respond to your new work? You know, it's interesting because this is kind of the first show that doesn't have a lot of kind of cartoony references. I used to reference Max Fleischer a lot, you know, old golden age of cartoon animation because yeah. I love all that stuff. Yeah. This show doesn't have any of that. And at first I was like, is it going to look like my work? Are people going to know? Because even to me, I was like, this feels strange, but also kind of cool. And I guess my thought pattern was, you know, I don't know if your viewers know like the lowbrow movement of the 90s in LA, but it was kind of like an, an LA art movement. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And I'm a part of that. But I thought, I don't want these to look like they're from any time period. I, hmm. Because, so, so going back, the original idea was like, I want to make paintings that kind of act like spells upon your consciousness when you look at them hmm. and actually maybe kind of molecularly change your vibe, the way when I'm in the forest, how I feel there. And, you know, it's a tall challenge. Like, yeah, can I make magical paintings? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but it, part of that thought process was like, I want them to look timeless. Like you can't really place what era they're from in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I thought people would kind of, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it doesn't look like your work, but it, weirdly, goth horror fans also like shells <laughs> who knew yeah, who knew <laughs> well yeah. and nothing's wrong is is also showing growth in your work it means you're willing to explore right. new things too so yeah 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 my whole life is just one big giant risk <laughs> <laughs> well if you take a risk here okay. well i was gonna say if you didn't Sorry. take a risk you're not living so you know yeah that's yeah. that's one way yeah. of looking else, at it yeah why not why not do it so, but I love how the show looks and yeah, it's, I was worried at first of like, how do I, how do I transition from the kind of older style to this? I just, as long as there's, you know, pointy black things, I think it works. <laughs> <laughs> pointy black things. <laughs> yeah. Spiky, spiky goth black things. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I might have to edit my laughing out, but that's funny. <laughs> no, I like, I like the laughing. Keep it in. Yeah. Well, it depends on the time. Just out of my own curiosity, are you going to have like a, a, a book of the show that's going to come out? You know, I would like to. It won't be out now because I literally just finished the paintings like three yeah, days ago. That's true. Um, yeah, because yeah. people were already asking like, is there a book? And it's like, I, I just finished them. No, 
the book takes like a whole other year. Yeah. It'd be crazy. I, I can, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I would like to, the one problem with art shows is that they just happen like in one place, in one city at one time. And like the bittersweet part is also for me, like I just finished these paintings and it'll be like the last time I ever see them, you know? Well, so true. Again, that true. duality. But yeah. if I, if there's a book, then I get to look at that. So, <laughs> yeah. You're about to send them out into that fearful world of glass and, and jagged edges of things. So. Yes, they're going out into the world. Hopefully they survive. I hope we'll they see. will. I think they will. I feel pretty confident they will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here, here's my um, favorite question that uh, I like to ask a lot of artists or fellow artisans, craftspeople, as I like to think of ourselves as craftspeople. Yes. Um, yes. What advice would you give to your past self and to other artists? So, you know, I think some good advice to have is you haven't failed if you haven't achieved what you thought you would achieve. Hmm. I think we set up expectations for what we think our careers are going to look like. Oh yeah. And sometimes you hit it, but sometimes you don't. It never means you failed at it. You know, the uh, thing I always tell people is like failure is just like the halfway point to success. So if you stop there, you're never going to really get to the good stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's also not always fun. Like people are like, oh, you're an artist. That must be so fun. And I'm like, no, it's actually torture. Like I hate it every day. You don't understand. Oh, yes. No, I I (laughs) feel you. I feel you. Yeah. 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 It's like I can't see anything. I have like carpal tunnel. Like it's not fun at all. But uh, (laughs) yeah, my knees are killing me. Uh, You know, I, I don't know how much longer I can do it because of my knees, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 And well, and you realize that, yeah, the transient nature of basically everything, yeah. you know, so you might as well do it now if you can do it now, you know, but I think for younger people, you know, you got to like follow your own instincts. That's kind of a vague one, but it basically means like sometimes you listen to other people for advice and that's maybe that's good. But at the end of the day, it's you, it's your work. You have to stand behind it. So, you know, you got to, you got to do something that you you're going to be proud of. Um, True that. Whether or not that makes money, that's a different conversation. That is, you know, yeah, yeah. Like true that. True that. You know. Yeah, yeah. But the money doesn't always equal success either. So. Nope, that's true too. Yeah. I mean, to me, success was that uh, I was able to pay bills. <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, that, that and that yeah, and that's that is huge because it's not. Easy. Oh yeah, um, it, it's not. But. Yeah, I think sometimes there's an expectation and that's probably something that is from art school where you think everyone thinks they're going to be in the Whitney Biennial or, you know, be selling at Sotheby's for millions of dollars. And, you know, that's just not a realistic lifestyle for like most people. That's not what happens. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should say that yeah, because I think about like, you know, that what if scenarios, like what if my stuff sold in those kind of places? How would I feel about that kind of success? Because then to me, that just breeds more pressure. And it just, does, and, and it's also like you have to mingle in those worlds, and yeah. that depends on what kind of person you are. You know, exactly. I'm the kind of person like I can't stand bullshit. You know, yeah. so I'd rather not be around. No, <laughs> so, well, so yeah, I've just like killed my Sotheby's career here. But um, <laughs> no, actually, they'll probably just made your value go up. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah who knows? <laughs> but. Uh, you know, that's a different world. That's a world of, of finance and investment. That's what that world is. You yeah. Know? That's so a, if you're in a world exactly of it. creation and, uh, you know, searching into the mystical, that's a different deal. 
Yeah, I, that's, I, that's I agree. That's where with I you. live. Yeah, <laughs> that's where I reside. Yeah, that's where I reside. You can find me there. <laughs> oh, mystical.com. Of, <laughs> I was, mystical. I was going to say, or off exit 55, right? Oh. <laughs> yes, Mystical Drive. That's where I live. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a lot of advice, but. No, that I was actually pretty good, useful. straight to the point advice. Yeah. Um, because, like you said, you just can't really. You have to be passionate about what it is that you want to get into. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. And there's that. Yeah. If you're happy in your life, that's a huge success right there. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't matter what you do. That's true. Well, that ends up that portion of the interview. Okay. Yeah, I know. It it went by pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say thank you to Camille for taking the time to do the interview. If you want to learn more about Camille, you can go to her website at CamilleRoseGarcia.com. She is also on Instagram at CRG Studios. KP Projects is at KPProjectsGallery.net. And to hear this episode and past episodes of Artbox DNV, go to the website at ArtboxDNV.com. And ArtboxDNV is on Instagram at ArtboxDNV. So until next time, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.